Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin Campus and beyond. A production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Kaspard and Holden Turner. Telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of students, staff, and community members. This week, we met up with Toby Tarpanian, owner of Morning Glory Natural Foods, which has been a staple of downtown Brunswick for decades. We talked about his path into the health foods industry, how he chooses his products, creating local jobs by supporting local food, how COVID has impacted his business, and much more. Here's that interview. So do you want to maybe tell us a little yeah. what you do? Sure. Full background on Morning Glory? Yeah, uh, my name is Toby Tarpinian, and my I work at Morning Glory Natural Foods, which is a little natural food grocery store here in town. Um, an independent, privately owned store that my mother opened in May of 1981 when I was two. <laughs> and um, I kind of grew up around the business and, you know, between and after school, I was always, it was kind of my second home or my first home, really. <laughs> um, and I worked there throughout my childhood. And then I, when I went to college, I went out to California for college and and I started my career after school and lived on the West Coast for 12 years. And I, I majored in business and then I went into a path of um, kind of corporate retail and in apparel. Um, the whole retail kind of uh, experience was in my DNA. And so yeah. inherently I went into, I worked for a handful of companies out in the Bay Area, always with this notion that I would eventually moved back to help with the family business. So I was kind of getting some experience in that area in a different part of the country with corporate America and large chains really operate on best practices. So you kind of get the, the crux of how a business works and they make it work in a thousand store chain. So I thought it would be quite translatable to coming back to the little mom and pop shop. And then through a turn of events, I quit my job in California and I moved back and I've been back working at Morning Glory with my family for about 10 years now. Yeah, it was always kind of that vision, like I can't let my mother sell the store once she gets too old to run it or wants to retire or whatever that looks like. So eventually I'll have to come back. And now it's just my stepdad and my mother and they're both trying to work less in theory um <laughs> the, <laughs> the pandemic you know so there was kind of like a loose game plan of where we'd end up yeah. in you know 12 to 18 months and as i buy the, the business and kind of take over things and then march hit mm. and it's funny i mean my mother only knows one speed you know and <laughs> so when the world became uh you know a bit of a crisis her speed was I gotta you know like clench back on and, and make sure that we get food out to the community because mm-hmm. that was really how the whole store started and I'll digress just for a second is because when my mother was 25 26 when she opened the store she was not from Maine living in an environment where natural foods kind of counterculture clean eating was pretty accepted she moved here <clears throat> and excuse me she couldn't find the food you know she couldn't get the resources she needed that she'd been used to so Morning Glory started as, well, I gotta get some clean, organic food to the community. Not about a business venture, really. You know, it's like, well, I'm, my habits of where I've always shopped and what I've always consumed are kinda, I can't find them here. So I need to open a store that I can bring like the organic farmers 
to the community. I can um, provide a clean food environment. And and it wasn't until you know a decade later that like oh wow this this grocery thing is kind of a, could be lucrative you know yeah. so so I digress because now my my girlfriend who actually worked she had two full time jobs one of them was at the child center at Bowdoin she's a teacher with the, the kids and she was doing that for the last year and a half and then she would do a kind of a high end waitress gig out in Hartswell every year so as a turn of result or a turn of key circumstances when the pandemic hit Bowdoin closed. I mean, you know, the, you know? <laughs> as you know, as you know firsthand, so the the child the child center, you know, initially they just closed down, so yeah. the students weren't there, and they, and they had like eight or ten students. And long story short, she started. She, you know, we were doing curbside. We innovated the business overnight. Like literally, woke up one day and okay, we can't have anyone in the store. We got to do X, Y, and Z, and we got to invent right. it as we go, and we got to put this on our website and our social media, and we got to put forms up, mm-hmm. and we have to like overnight switch the, you know team of people that used to bring people up and put groceries away now have to we have to in a efficient manner take people's personal orders and, mm-hmm. and shop for them and then right. so anyway she one day we were in a real pinch at the store again you know my girlfriend if i'd asked her a month before the pandemic oh you want to come work with me yeah. in morning glory <laughs> kidding me <laughs> we live together <laughs> we spend most of our time together but when the, the pandemic hit i think a lot of people just had to course correct and change what they're doing and so i called her one day and i'm like we're kind of like all hands on deck type crisis. Can you come? And she was on her way somewhere. She dropped what she was doing. Literally changed her clothes, came to work, and was like, I've never worked in retail or grocery, but what do you need me to do? <laughs> like, can you bag these groceries? And then that, so that was, she kind of worked volunteer style for yeah. a couple months. And then finally, because again, you know, family dynamics were always a little tricky. Yeah. It was my mother who, uh, and my mother's kind of a, you know, she's a tough egg to crack. She's pretty, she's got a heart of gold, but she's just, she's a, five foot Jewish woman from Brooklyn and it's like ingrained in her DNA you know and so she doesn't care too well sometimes she comes off as a little rude and dismissive but she's not she just is she's doing her thing and she doesn't you know and she, so it was my mother who went to my girlfriend and was like I think uh, what do you think about working here full time and so here we are she's over at the store you know we work side by side which the relationships are challenging enough but so and what's ironic is like I said my stepdad who is a, he's an engineer by trade. He's our like IT maintenance, you know, to the point where if the freezer breaks, he fixes it, the roof caves in, he repairs it. You know, he's one of those MacGyvery kind of one of a kind, uh-huh. and he has an engineer background. We used to own a store in Bath. That's right when I was like leaving to go to California, they opened Bath Natural Market, used to be Morning Glory. Yeah. So he quit his job as an engineer and started, again, learned from the ground up and started his own little store. Then the two stores just got to be too much, so they sold that. But he never went back to his career. He's been, you know, he's an engineer by trade, and he did that for 20 years, and now he's yeah. been, like I said, he fixes everything, and mm-hmm. he's kind of, so we all complement the business in a, in a certain way. But they work together, and now it's, you know, they've been doing that for, so it's a testament that people can <laughs> cohabitate, you know, and be, and work together, but we're still, but the pandemic kind of brought that to the table. Mm-hmm. So can I ask, I know you don't have first-hand experience with this, but back in the 80s when the store started, what was what was the initial store like, and how is it yeah. changed? Believe it or not, this, the original Morning Glory was the next store over. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, again, like I, you know, as I was like five, six, seven, I started to remember stuff. Yeah. <laughs> My mother actually had a partner um, in the first few years. Mm-hmm. She'd been living in Santa Cruz. I mean, you know, super hippie. California. California. Yeah. She'd gone to UC Santa Cruz, graduated college, and then kind of was in this communal living type setting was working in a juicery and 
also working at a natural food store. Yeah. So her vision was, you know, she came back here and it was literally like, I mean, again, it's hard for, like, I don't necessarily remember, and you guys certainly don't, but, you know, <laughs> the, the independent natural food store from the 70s, 80s was, it's funny, I mean, you could kind of go into any one of them in America of the 2000 that existed, mm-hmm. and you, you change the names of the employees and, you, you know, you change the name of the town, but they were very similar and interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of like a like-minded group of people that opened these stores. Yeah. And you even found some of that culture when Whole Foods first opened. You know, they were very community-based. They were they were different and individual, and they had parts of the store that were dedicated to uh, not only the community but who was eating and who was providing the food. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the next door. It was a tiny little footprint. The thing that's funny about Brunswick, as I'm sure you guys, a lot of these businesses, when you start looking at the building, you know, I mean, it had like a Victorian metal yeah. uh-huh. ceiling and these really squeaky wood floors, kind of like it does now. It was not meant to be a grocery store. So it was this kind of awkward space that my my biological father, he lives in California still, he helped build out, he was a carpenter, and so he helped build out the store. So all the fixtures and the shelves and the uh, bulk bins were all like yeah. handmade and they just kind of, they were not very efficient or, you know, now everything in groceries, like cram as much as you can in, mm-hmm. have it not be very heavy and make it, you know, movable and blah, blah, blah. This mm-hmm. was back in the, the 80s when looking cute and being <laughs> hand built was more <laughs> eclectic, I guess you'd say. Yeah. So the old store had these big clunky handmade wooden everything, but it felt cool. You know, it smelled like, it had that smell like a natural food store. My, we had a big register that wrapped all the way down the middle of the store, which in today's day and age was just a huge waste of space. You know, we had a counter. We could have had two rows of groceries, but my grandpa, my mother's father ran fancy formal dress store, women clothing stores in Manhattan, yeah. Brooklyn. So she had some, I guess, retail in her not that she worked there, but she had been to her family's businesses. But she d- honed in on retail skills over the years. So like I'm saying, the space allocation wasn't great. It kind it felt really cool in the old store. Mm-hmm. But it was literally, there's a place called Stars. It's like a hair salon right next door. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so, you know, she did that for 10 years. And then what happened was the next property became open for rent. So the landlord of the whole building allowed them to break the wall down and open that oh, into nice. what I think is not, was Timeless Cottage. It's going to be a, a little French bakery now i mean that's what this window says so then we went from like one kind of main street strip of you know about 20 feet wide by say 60 feet deep to two main street strips and there was like a hole in the wall and so we added significant square footage and then another place went out of business and like through like you know old new england town kind of style we busted another hole and by so until the building that morning where is currently in came for sale we were kind of like operating three and then two and a half storefronts on Main Street Um, and then the business the corner that the store is in currently the kind of funny history was Drapeau's pharmacy on like I think in like the 20s turn of the century ish Uh, like medicines yeah Yeah, but before Walgreens and you know Rite Aid kind of ran the or CVS before corporate so it was literally like a man in a white lab coat you know with like uh, there was even a smoothie counter you know like uh, you get like wraps and stuff Um, and so Eddie Drapeau was the man that owned this business and then Downey's Pharmacy I want to say he still owned it but maybe like the next closest thing to a corporate pharmacy bought it which was like maybe they had three branches in Mm -hmm. southern Maine and then he got old and I think the business you know the way of the world you know kind of everything else that's when Rite Aid Logins came in and so the writing was on the wall and that building went up for sale and we bought that store mid 90s 
it was not meant to be a grocery store, so like we gutted it and then moved the store there, and we've been there since you know coming on what twenty five years, twenty seven years. And then to be in your own landlord is huge when you're owning a business. So that you know we own that that building, so there's store stuff upstairs. We that's leveraged a lot. We you know um, the last thing I'll say about the structure itself is. For years, my whole life was like, oh, we love Morning Glory, but there's no parking, and this is such a challenging town. Customers don't want to drive downtown with two kids in snow and have to park here to get to the store, you know? So the business behind the store, another similar to when we expanded, it was an old auto parts shop that had been there since the 50s. Morin's Auto Parts was closing, going out of business. They had three structures. We were able to buy the, the structures, tear down two of them, and put that parking lot in, which there's been incremental revolutions to the build, to the business. You know, yeah. like adding 20 parking spots a couple of years ago made a huge difference. Wow. And now we have that one warehouse, which has got a walk-in freezer and a fridge that we can store stuff. Mm. That's kind of the history of the, the structure itself. So we've always been on Main Street and we've just kind of grown with the town. It's mm. kind of like, oh, this opportunity is here, let's do it. But yeah. how, do you, how do you determine what goes on the Yes, well, a few things. Over the years, that whole process has changed monumentally. You know, one of the key things to work with on the shelf is we vet products. So you got to look at not only the ethics of the company manufacturing it, but the ingredients and the certifications and all that. And that's kind of what natural food stores are all about. I mean, part of it is if you go into a reputable store like that, you kind of don't have to worry about reading every label and wondering, well, is it going to be, you know, so that's part of our thing is that we do that research for the customers. So there's that aspect of it. And honestly, like this is part of this like gifted science that my mom has brought to this business years and years ago, before sales reps, before the internet, before you could get an email that had all the new products, before you know Instagram would you, a vegan group would share one thing, and next thing you know we had to have it because so you you know so twenty years ago that wasn't the way of product distribution. And she, what I've learned from her is this, this cunning ability to be like that's going to work, and that's and it's funny that was my biggest obstacle coming back here. Is I'm like. Oh, we got, you know, a lot of new, I'm like, she's like, that will never sell. I'm like, you have no idea. What, you know? and, but what I found in 10 years is 97% of the time, her intuition, because she's been doing this for 40 years, is usually spot on. We're all, we all have like, you know, she's like, I never guessed that would have sold. And it does. But most of the time, so it's like, it's all, there's a bunch of things that go into that equation. The demographic of Brunswick, the income level of your customer. So like what will sell in Whole Foods in an urban area? So, you know, you get people like, this is so great everywhere in the country, but Brunswick, Maine isn't everywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. And the, there's economic factors. Maine is just a little different. So I, I had to filter a lot of this, like, I'd go to the sales shows in Baltimore. You know, there's, like, National Food Convention every year. Mm-hmm. Talk to these companies that had what I thought was a great product, but it just was priced out of our demographic. So I think there's those are the variables. It's, like, the company itself, the ingredients in the product, just an intuition of what sells in Brunswick and what, what our customers are looking for. And then knowing the trends of the natural foods industry. Right now, like plant-based, vegan foods, I mean, I could give you like four categories. It pretty much doesn't really matter what those products are. If we put them on the shelf because of like the trend of retail right now, they're gonna sell. I think my, we've always been really good. You kind of get ahead of a trend and then you ride that wave until kale is no longer the trend. You know, or like, <laughs> If you're kind of late to the party, then it just seems mundane that you have what everyone else has. But now and now, today's day and age, especially with the pandemic, you know, we have brokers do Zoom meetings and they show new products remotely and we get samples in the mail. And a lot of that promotional stuff is. And then I guess the final layer of good retail and understanding what to get is now I get, I'd say a third of our products, not a third, maybe 15% is customers comes in 
I got this at my daughter's house in wherever. Or you know what? I've been buying this down at Lois's or Whole Foods. This stuff's great. You've got to try it. So you take that empty package, you scan it with a scanner, or you call your distributor or whatever it is, and you find that. We've had a ton of success right from customer feedback. And so a lot of, I think it's like, you go to a grocery store and you come up with an empty package. A lot of grocers are like, really? Like, you want me to like find, you know, this is great that you went to visit an in-law wherever and you like this one, you know, English muffin. But, but we found that if you do, and then it really connects, it makes our store a connection to a person. It's like, it happens, you know, every week someone brings in something. And then it's kind of like you like a finder's fee. It's like, don't get me wrong, sometimes they're, they're not accurate recommendations. But a lot of times it's like, I'll see a customer after a month and I'll be like, Hey, thank you so much for the heads up on whatever. It worked out great, and you were the reason, you know. Again, nowadays, so that was kind of back in the day, that was the only way you found out about stuff. Yeah. Now with phones and, you know, and believe it or not, like some of the social media platforms have revolutionized product growth. And I'm certainly not the most savvy in that realm, but it, it does dictate some consumer behaviors. It's like, much like in real niche markets, so like, like I said, vegans are, there's certain categories of a natural food store that have really gone after social media and that's where people learn a lot of stuff and it creates, a, it creates an energy and a draw and then they come in and ask about it. Can you talk more about like differentiating yourself from like more traditional grocery stores? Yeah, um, well you guys have been in the store and this is, it's, this is a great question because again, when I moved back here, I had, I had worked, I'd worked my way up at, I got recruited to Target out of college. Yeah. And I kind of just worked up the chain at Target to, a, I was a store manager, I was running some high volume Targets in the Bay Area, and then I went to Gap, and I did Old Navy, and then I worked at Ross, which is an off-price, it's like TJ Maxx. So I was a regional manager for a while. So talk about contrast. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so there is, there's, so when I moved back here, I'd been, you know, very much best practice driven, big, clean, white stores, like, yeah. you know, and yeah. so when I moved back, and don't mind, I mean, mind you, my whole childhood was based on the quirky weirdness of Morning Glory. But like the first things I wanted to do was like, oh, we need to put like sign, aisle signs, we need to make, put better lights, we need to clean up the <laughs> store, we need to get rid of the, let's get a real floor and make a concrete, you know. So I, I had this, and it took me a quite a long time to realize that the shtick that we've built over there is the Morning Glory experience. Yeah. And so you talk about not being non-traditional, uh, and it's still, you know, now that my girlfriend, I have a, or, a, other sets of eyes in there to kind of, what people like, or what sets us apart is all the stuff that used to be like, we got to get rid of this. There's, there's floors creaking there. We got, <laughs> we got crap piled everywhere. I mean, it's like to our own detriment. You know, some customers, I can't move in here. And I, you know, I, I turn to the left, I, I knock over a fixture and I turn to the right and there's like a big you know, fixture of socks or. Yeah, but it is fashionable to be a little that's so unconventional is and and i fought that you know like i came from this very corporate conventional background and i like my you know and so my stepdad and my mom were both kind of like you know i had tangible experience but they're like give it a little while i kind of learned and it took me like two years to really realize that the that the attraction to that building is the experience you know non-traditional experience so there's no the line's always crazy like people you know there's like we got stuff piled here and signs over here and like, and that thing that, you know, my mom is, you know, watch pilot high, watch it fly, you know, and there's <laughs> stuff everywhere. And it's like, why, when you go to Hannaford, you can't find, we call them pack tax items. So we, if you notice the store is full of 
non-edible, non-grocery, random stuff. Yeah. You might get a set of earrings. You might get a candle. You know, you might find some beeswax. But then you're also going to get your basket of groceries, yeah. and you're probably going to run into three neighbors, and you know, you're probably going to knock something over, and you're probably going to wonder like why you bought something. You know, because so that experience is very non-traditional, and I it took me a long time to realize that that's what draws people in. I think you go to even like a Whole Foods nowadays. It's pretty, you know. I mean, everything's kind of uniform. It's mm. you know, and you you still see, and it's funny because a lot of the corporate larger chains of natural food stores have, in their corporate best practice way, have emulated the little mom and pop. You know, they've mm. kind of done some of that artsy eclectic stuff. <laughs> but so yeah, I mean, I think that when you go into an independent natural food store, you get this bizarre experience, and yeah. it's. I did, I did an interview yesterday for a new employee, and it's like I try to explain our staff. So we have 25 people on staff with my family. 15 of them have been there for 15 plus years. You know, we have up to 25, 30. You know, we have, and I always describe it's like, well, you're joining like a dysfunctional, quirky family. You know what I mean? It's like, and what's funny is you can go to any independent natural food store and you can pretty much change, like I was saying earlier, change the names. But we have, so there's like a bulk guy, and there's a produce girl, and there's a, you know, there's a, a health and beauty buyer. And so we have a manager and a buyer of each department. And right. it really is like, I tell new employees, like you're gonna have to kind of mesh with the weird family yeah. and the people that embrace that. Uh, so it goes with everything you were talking about. It's like a little weird in there. Things are not traditionally lined up. You know, there's stuff where it shouldn't be. You got signs up here, you got signs down here. You got weird, you know, like charities here and there. And then you got just a literally a cartoon book cast of characters, and that's including myself and yeah. my mom. It's like, um, and that's what you just don't get. You know, we don't have like structured uniforms, and as much as I've been trying to bug them for years to wear name tags, it's like, and that's kind of what you get. And I and I'd like to. Say, it took me a long time to realize and appreciate that. That's kind of again. This is my mother's footprint that she built a million years ago that I'm carrying on the legacy. But that weirdness is what brings people to these stores. Initially, I wanted to just like clean all that up and make it feel like cookie cutter and sterile, which is I've found is not that doesn't. I mean, it's a that's a different model that doesn't work for us. Can I ask how that character of store family has translated to sustainability, environmentalism, and small business? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, uh, like I said, I think the, that the founding vision of the store was really about getting food to the community. Yeah. And with that being said, that means you have a working relationship with all the farmers, a working relationship with manufacturers. You know, Maine has turned into a real cottage industry type state. There's not a lot of jobs, so people start making their own jobs in their house and their property. And so a place like Morning Glory bridges the gap between all of that and creates a sustainable like job market and a food culture. So we, you know, we've always been very, we've been a staple of the community. And I think that back in the day, it was really, my mother's vision was really just like, we got to get food to the people. And that's why I come back to 2020 and I say this pandemic, like my, you know, her and I butt heads on like how many people we should have in or the hours. And we want to make sure our staff's comfortable that we're doing the right thing. And that we follow protocol really well. But my mother and I finally had, okay, not an argument, but a conversation. And I'm like, you know, it gets too crowded certain times. We got to get the door person back in and close the doors down, even though we're allowed to have more people. And so she, she, she said, "All my only reason I fight to keep the store open is because I feel like we owe it to our community and to our customers to keep delivering food to everyone." Yeah. 
So that's where her, you know, boomer, boomer culture, you know, like work a million hours, like, well, these rules, we've got to get the food out. And then you got my generation that's just like, we still have to follow. And the reason I bring that up is just because it's been glaring that her vision from the beginning is now ringing true. Mm -hmm. And that's why she's working so much more and harder, I think, because, but uh, I think with any independent, you know, so we put local uh, vendors top of the list always. You talk about vetting new products. They're often more expensive. They're often a harder sell. Um, sometimes their expiration packaging is, you know, a little more, not as glamorous on the shelf and it's harder, you know, it's just customers don't resonate yeah. to it as much. So we always prioritize local vendors. I'd say 25% of the store is from right here in the community. And I don't think, you know, I think you, now you go to the big boxes, you know, it's like mm-hmm. local has become a real mm-hmm. big buzzword. So that was our sustainability model from day one was we, everything we get is baked goods to produce. You know, in the summer, 85, we only sell organic produce and 85% of that produce is from, we have, yeah. you know, 12 farms we, we source from. And now in your mind, is there a trade-off between the local higher, um, higher prices products and, and also kind of service? The, yeah, it's, a, it's just a juggling act. Yeah. I think there is a balance. But fortunately, our Brunswick really, Brunswick, Southern Maine, I mean, there is such a culture of support local that we embodied that back when there was no thing, support local was, so we made this like, and other independents made this culture and like drove this home over and over and over. And have facilitated the ability for people to come out. Exactly, and then, and that became, became full circle. So now when customers come in, they want to support us, they want to support the vendor, they will go out of their way to, there's most people who have these, this set of values, when you're talking about A and B, and this is less expensive and not local, yeah. <clears throat> people are big on, on putting it back into our economy here in town. And so been, it, it took a while to create that culture. And I think you'll see that culture everywhere. And that's why even like Shaw's will have a local section. But yeah, it was, I mean, you train your customers and then they follow in suit. <laughs> I mean, I think that was kind of like, before I was even working at the store, that was the thing is we are considered local because you see a family and you see us, we give jobs to 25 people, we, um, and then in turn, in a, you know, in an indirect way, the amount of jobs that are created by, you know, local yogurt companies, local, I mean, we, if you go to the store, if we were walking around the shelves, I mean, it's like, it's eye-opening to see how many people that are local that have made it to our shelves, that we've eliminated less expensive or other options because we, so if you go to the store and you only have one option for, you know, Winter Hill cheese out of Freeport, you're going to buy it if we don't have um, a bunch of other national brands. So, yeah, I think the, the local sustainability model started kind of with the store, went back up to the community, and now the community embraces it. Would your vision be for stores broadly to kind of adopt this? Like, are, are you still trying to, like, capture this particular niche? Do you think that niche is getting bigger? Is it's getting that, bigger. like, a good thing overall? Yeah. Or? Um, that's another the world is just a different place I mean this was a very isolated niche that not and I don't I mean my mother can take and give her credit for like starting an independent grocery store but like I said even in the 80s what she was doing was isolated all over the country to every other little independent this was like a thing you know and counterculture natural food store they were very similar but they didn't really communicate with each other with an emphasis on the counterculture like it was going against the totally totally yeah, like these granola hippies were going to have food that was different. It wasn't mass produced. It wasn't processed. Yeah. You weren't supporting these companies that were evil. You know, you, that was really the, 
When I was a kid, there wasn't much money in this industry. I'd go to these big, huge conventions, and it was like kind of like-minded people like my mother that had started businesses. Sometime in the 90s, when Whole Foods coming, being public, some people realized, oh, there's a bunch of money in this like industry that used to be a bunch of like kind of hippies that wanted to eat better. I mean, it's literally, it was like I'd go, as a kid, I'd go to these huge convention expos around the country, and it was a very, the demographic was very easily described, you know, all the same type of people. It was a lot of like 60s, 70s hippies that decided to become business people, not to make money, but literally just, you know, they didn't drive lavish cars or have fancy houses. They took enough to, to live and eat. And it was just, it was that same demographic or kind of personality that I was describing my mom. It's just like a person that wanted to find good food. And then somewhere along the line, the, the big companies, the, you know, the corporate America, everyone's starting, oh, wow, there's something in this natural food stuff. That's why every brand you see on the shelf is now, unfortunately, most of them have been bought up by companies that we probably don't want to discuss you know it's like all the brands that used to be you know we'd go to these same conventions and it'd be like oh there's annie who you know and her daughter who were making the macaroni or like, <laughs> i mean and that, you know that literally it was like my, i told you my mom worked at a juicery in santa cruz the santa cruz juices was you know that was it it was two a mother i mean a couple smuckers had bought up that you know it, it, there's just over the years some people realize there's a ton of money in natural foods and that's why it's kind of gone like every other industry but um so i think back in the day it really was a niche it was like oh just follow this wave like keep that's why people when you roll into any town america if you're into natural foods or you're an organic clean eater you know now you like google the, the natural store you kind of know what to expect they're all kind of similar you know but now it's growing now it's not a niche anymore and that's why like even when you go to whole foods they've because back in the day, Whole Foods was a great company. I mean, they really was just a larger version of a little independent. And then they went public and this and that. And then their stores changed and the community focus was a little different. And I'm not knocking Whole Foods by any means. Their model is, I mean, you see those stores. They're, but I think that they've tried to mass produce that little bit of niche uh-huh. and that little quirkiness of a natural food store. So I think, um, I think like, I, I'm real proud of my mom from 40 years ago. It was like a real entrepreneurial mindset. But now they're mass producing. The, you know, it's like they're putting that smell into a bottle, and they're. You know. Do you think you like lose the whole value of it when it becomes on a big scale? Like I, is that, I think is that you do the, lose the value. I think what any good business person would tell you is that you have to continue to reinvent yourself to get ahead of all that. So what will be the next thing? Like, <laughs> not that we're going to reinvent the store, but what will we do next year to still feel like mom and pop? Like what? What unusual thing will you be able to buy there? What? I think it's just like any business one-on-one is you just you have to continue to be innovative and get ahead of whatever's coming and um so what are you excited about especially yeah what excites me you know i'll kind of step aside i don't know i'm the world's a little unusual right now so i if we were in like status quo i'd be like you know coming into january we'd have some new sales plans and we'd be sourcing some new vendors and uh, one thing that is really big in any food environment is grab and go food on the go yeah. so like something a category that's grown huge for us is people want to be able to roll into a place and buy clean healthy food and be able to go eat it right then and that's why when you go you know you look at a whole foods like the whole perimeter now is pretty much like grab and go stuff so it's americans i think younger people everyone wants convenience and cleanliness in the food so we had to shut this whole category down for a while because 
people didn't want to touch the food you were making. But if I had to, you know, coming into the new year, I know that's one area that we're really growing is is food that's prepared. And whether that's like, you know, we have a certified kitchen upstairs, whether that's getting, so we, we hire some people to make sandwiches and salads. And yeah. That's an area that has, you know, pre-made food. And that's even if you go to like a freezer nowadays at a, at a natural food store, I mean, some of the stuff that you can get for four or five dollars is very different from what it used to be. You know, there's a stigma with frozen stuff or it wasn't. I mean, I, when I was in college, I ate a lot of food on the go and it, and unfortunately it wasn't very healthy most of the time because and even in San Francisco, it was rich, great, delicious food, but none of it was very healthy. So there's a big thing with younger people and just working young professionals to be able to get food on the go that's healthy. So that was something that we were really going to go after in 2021. That question is a little tricky because I just don't know. Right now we're, we're busy. March and April were totally weird. Was it like just because there's no one coming in like what was what was um, particularly weird about it yeah so march you know march the stuff happened i mean yeah. i remember march 19th is a saturday not <laughs> not that different from the this day <laughs> well i mean it was i usually go in around 8 39 and mm-hmm. i had something in portland so i went in a little later and i had got a text from a friend just a close friend of mine who had been in the store yeah. and they're like you gotta you're gonna want to get into the store it's not right you know, so and I, I walked in, I couldn't walk in. There was, you've seen the store. I mean, there was a line from the registers that wound through the body care to the bulk, to the freezer and out the back door. And oh there's like God. 450 people in morning glory. Wow. And so think about it, this is like right the week, three days before like pandemics here. Yeah. What would be the worst and most awful thing you could do during a pandemic? Just shut down into a confined space right (laughs) so here we are americans there's like the most predictable (laughs) like oh my god there's gonna be a global pandemic where everyone's gonna get sick we better get groceries so why and this is before the state or even anywhere there was no rules we and so we got through that day and then it was like the week thereafter that we started making adjustments to the store what was weird is so march april they kind of left us to make our own rules that was like no one's wearing masks no one had gloves you just knew like we started wiping stuff down yeah. and we knew that we should probably and then there was a state mandate like five days later five people in the store so that was like from april may and most of in june we were only really allowed to have five people and that was so we had to have a door person and again it was a mandate i you know we follow the rules to let out the logs that you know we're used to having a lot more people in the store so and then like i said we we're doing a, a all of a sudden, we're doing like 100 to 200 curbside orders a day. We don't have, you know, Instacart, or we didn't have an online anything. We had very little infrastructure. So again, this becomes a game of, we had a Google form that I put up on our website. That was it. So it becomes this, so not only do we, you know, we have 12 employees, say, in a given day, who used to put orders away and stop, stock the shelves and put the produce away and fill the freezer and cut cheese and ring the register. Now they have a totally new job and that is personal shopping and interpreting. And when you don't have a real specific system, like mm-hmm. say a, yeah. a big yeah, grocery like, store, mm-hmm. it's such an, you know, literally, because people, people's minds work differently. So these lists are... <laughs> I bet they want some order. No, that was, then we came up with a form that was like based on the departments, but yeah. it literally became like human interpretation of work because then you got you know people calling everyone's like at home they're frustrated they're pissed off they don't the world's all when people were still adjusting to what was going on and they did not they've not been kind over the months so then you got you know poor employees getting reamed out because like you know i said i wanted whatever one you know again it's like three words and you or i would all three of us would interpret that grocery item entirely different (laughs) including the customer So it was amazing. The one thing I'll say is that this group of people at the store, 
when the when the pandemic hit, this energy erupted, and we all became like everyone's jobs shifted overnight. Everyone's job description, what they were doing, and we all like rose to the occasion, and everyone became positive, and everyone looked out for each other. It was like this energy that happened. Now I will tell you that that burned off after three, four, five months, right? <laughs> and people just got tired, you yeah. know, and that's where we are. And then people have just not been nice, you know. It's been so once in the middle of July we were able to let 25 people mm. back on the store at a time, which we don't ever do. We still have door people from time to time, but mm. so I say it was just odd. It was weird. Mm. Here we are. So basically, we we're doing like enough business to keep the lights on and kind of do last year's business and we were exerting six times the labor. Mm. And so the group of, you know, then these orders would come, the drivers wouldn't come in the store, so, which was fine, but like, it was just a different, that every delivery was late, everything was out of stock. People, customers couldn't understand why we didn't have what they wanted. This trickle down of supply just got really dicey. And, and we've kind of subsided, but I will tell you one thing just with grocery stores, what happened in March and April is that they, you know, Americans depleted the whole supply of stuff. So whether it's canned tomatoes or pumpkin or certain herbs and spices. Flour. Flour, yeah. Like, no so go. they depleted that supply back in the early spring to the right. point where most vendors had to wait for this year's harvest. Mm. And consumers can't understand that. They're like, what do you mean you don't have it? It's like, well, there was no more canned tomatoes until the next organic tomato harvest. That's when they'll be able to can them again. And like, I don't, because of the overbuying in the spring. Mm. And so we're still dealing with a lot of that now. Here we're coming into holiday where there's gonna be organic butter shortage, cream, okay. stuff that got depleted in the spring. I didn't realize it had such a big ripple. Yeah, that's, yeah, we didn't really either. There's certain categories that literally, now that everyone's beefing up again because you cook a lot and yeah. you bake a lot, there's elements that got washed away in the spring that they literally have to wait for another annualized year of harvest. But um, we'll be back to like, seasonal harvest like i don't know sometimes i it's forget totally, but like we all do flour. that's why and so then you're trying to tell a customer that's making chili and they're like i just need the tomatoes <laughs> like i you see the whole shelf that you see this 18 feet section there's not one canned tomato yeah so i mean what, what's wrong with you people like, I mean, that there's been a lot of this blame and frustration and so that translates into curbside orders that translates into people in the store Again, not to digress about the pandemic, but there was a time in the beginning where I like everyone seemed to oh, it's gonna be great for humankind. We're gonna yeah. like help our neighbor, and we're gonna be nicer, and it's gonna make pollution better, and everyone's gonna slow down and spend time with family, and blah 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 blah, which I think was true for like six weeks. And then I feel like in the last two three months, it's enabled humans just to be overtly rude and mean <laughs> and do things. It's like now maybe this election will help change some stuff, mm. but. There has been behaviors I've observed working in a grocery store in the last couple months that I don't, I didn't, they, like six months ago, it was not okay for a human to interact with another human like that. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like there's been this entitled, I don't, I mean, we have allowed people, you know, like if we got the staff together and had a beer and yeah. told stories of <laughs> bizarre customers. I mean, people spitting on you. Oh, yeah, that's what I mean. It's like, hey, can you put a mask on? They spit on the floor. You know what uh, I mean? It's like weird. And this is a natural food store. So uh, <clears throat> I think that the tension of all the politics yeah. it definitely added a layer. You know, Maine has an elderly, you know, a lot of our customers are, are elderly, and which puts them into like a good food category, but <laughs> might put them into a different political category. Yeah. And yeah. Um, 
that was a lot of the elderly didn't handle this very well. Like they, like I've been going down to a grocery store for 50 years, and now you tell me I gotta like wear a mask. And I'm just I'm amazed with how many people that would seemingly be an at risk category come in that store every day and wait amongst people. You know, it's like. So Jerry, we kind of got off track, but as far as like what excites me about next year, and I'm not sure. I, I just we've all been working so darn hard. Yeah. I take Sundays off. You know, I used to have a normal life. I would travel and I would go do fun things from time to time. And I work 12 hours a day, six days a week. Yeah. Everyone in my life, everyone I know is like, you know, what's wrong? You know, you can't even yeah. make plans. I go to see my family. You know, so I this place has kind of consumed me. Yeah. <laughs> It, it does, and then you know, after, after watching my mom was one step out the door, then March hit, and she like came right back to the. I got to follow in suit, you know. It's like my stepdad's trying to retire, so he did a lot of fun things this during this period. But uh, it's been nonstop with you know, so it's like I feel like it's this perpetual thing. Like we just got a huge grocery order yesterday, so you take a breath. We'll sell a bunch of stuff, but here I got to go back and do another order for Monday, and then everything's the. It's funny, we stopped selling a lot of things we always used to sell. So like 20% of the store is 80% of the business, if you, yeah. if you think about mm. that. It used to be, you know, everything contributed in its own way. Mm. Yeah, but like, I can go in there and like, when I go back and order, I don't even, I, I could just walk around the store and just order the same things that I know will be out of when the next order comes yeah. because of the What kind of things are like being focused on most? Like staples, like, like canned goods, mm. frozen vegetables, uh, dairy, I mean, like staple foods, I guess. Yeah. So, like, not that that's what we always used to sell, but it's like, you know, I used to sell, say, 12 bags of frozen peas every two days. Now it's like I have to get six cases of frozen peas. And I don't, <laughs> people have just re- they've honed in on what they can live at home with yeah. and what they need staple wise. It's mm-hmm. like, why do we always out of when we were home for months and months? Yeah. To answer your question, we're just trying to survive at this point. And I know it sounds like catty. We work at a grocery store. It's not like you know, everyone's essential. It's not, you know, yes, we get the food out there. But once I keep, you know, keep wanting to get through this year. Like initially it was like, all right, I've worked 40, you know, I mean, there was a month period where I didn't take a day off. And then it was like, we kind of, my girlfriend, and I was like, she's like, you, you got to set some side some time for yourself or you're just going to lose it. So we started to get a little better at that. And now it's just like, it's still never ending, you know? So it's kind of like, I want to just, the business is doing really well. So since we were able to have more people, August, September, October have been blossoming year, uh, months for us. Yeah. I mean, we've always run comps from the previous year, but the last three months have been great. So now it's just like, how do we stabilize? I guess my focus for yeah. next year is really just stabilizing mm-hmm. this new normal. Yeah. I mean, I think a vaccine and things getting back to normal Whatever that could be might help us get back to a normal grocery environment. Yeah. But right now, it's like I've had to hire some new people, and then we're trying to train them during a pandemic. And so, anyways, my focus for next year and new products is literally just staying afloat, <laughs> getting some sleep. You know? <laughs> yeah. I've got a question. It's a little bit uh, off topic, but let's say you're speaking to a college student or a young person or someone who's just about buying groceries for the first time for themselves. What would you say to them about why it's important? Yeah, a few things. I mean, I think understanding the local economy is really important. Yeah. So when you can, like, you could really easily on a little, like, chart break down, you know, so you shop here, the jobs it provides to this community and to the vendors and to the people providing. Not that, like, a Hannaford doesn't obviously provide no, jobs. Um, yeah, it's like a macroeconomics class, really, because it's <laughs> like when you look at, you know, the companies that own the products, that the trucking companies that ship them to the stores, it's kind of mm-hmm. like, 
it kind of goes with what you're saying, like like-minded. Like, what do you want to support in the world? You know. Sure. But I still think you could get away from all that and just bring it down to the comeliness of the food itself. I mean, when I was in college, and this is coming from growing up in a gro- in an actual food store. Yeah. I struggled eating well. You know, I mean, I was like fast and cheap were kind of the variables I went after. So I think it's twofold. You can really hone in on like who you're supporting, the local economy, the parent companies that the ethics and you know kind of where you want to fall on that. But also just eating cleaner. You know, you could you could go through a Hannaford or a Shaw's or a Kroger and like really search out the clean, preservative-free, yeah. you know, certified that's organic. Possible, but what you're saying is true. Yeah, I mean that's you could walk in the store and take the mind part of it out of it. Mm-hmm. Sure. And nine out of ten things you pick up are clean and, and ready to roll, and, yeah. and that's what people who are not clean eaters or people who are transitioning their life. We get a lot of people who go to a doctor who say you have these terrible food allergies, or you got to do this, or you're not going to sustain, or you're going to have health problems. Mm-hmm. And they come over to our store, and that's what I told you from the beginning of this conversation. Is like part of the benefit is we take that guessing and vetting out of the product. So if I was talking to a college kid, I mean, I think I would go after like. Don't you, you know, why don't you start eating cleaner now? And then kind of, um, you know that you're going to find the right ingredients, but also, you know, you're giving right back to the community. I feel like, you know, in these, Hannaford is still a community-driven store. But again, it'd be like an economics class. Like, you could look at the, the larger picture of who you're supporting when you go into, you know, it's just like when Walmart, when I was a kid, like, well, they built this Walmart out in Cook's Corner. And it was like the, this whole town. I mean, it was the biggest deal because they were the concern of the town was you're gonna Brunswick downtown would fade away, and all there used to be department stores down there, like there was Grand City, and there was many more kind of stores that a Walmart would compete with. Yeah. And so the thought was, overnight you're gonna like Cook's Corner will become downtown. Mm. There'll be no more commerce down here, and all these businesses will close. And you see what I mean? That didn't happen. You know, there's been a you know, you Gulf of Maine books. I mean, Borders came into Cook's Corner, and I was like, they're going out of business, and Borders closed. You know, there's been, <laughs> you know, I think, and again, this isn't really what we're talking about, but I just, I just remember when I was a kid, the Walmart opening in Cook's Corner was like the biggest 911 for this community you've oh. ever heard of. Oh. It was all over the news. Like it was, how can the state, how can the town get them not to come in? But then you had all these other people that were like, this gives tax dollars to the town. This mm-hmm. is great. Like, you know, yeah. who cares about downtowns anymore? Yeah. The way of America is strip malls. Let's just do it. And they've been able to find a balance. So it's like, I think, you know, young people, talking to young people, how can you support, you know, this cute downtown only exists because we have commerce and people, you know, might pay a little inflated price, but you know it's going to the salary of your neighbor, you know, so. I have one other question about, like, packaging and sort of the waste pollution that goes into groceries, because... I've been looking at like my own waste and mm-hmm. like literally 99% of it is containers. And, yep. and I was wondering if you could just like talk about if you do yeah. anything to try and manage that, like is that Yeah, I mean, I'd say like in, yeah, in, I mean, it's huge. That is, so within the confines of our building, we, you know, again, if the 25 people that work there were every person in the world, I think that that waste would be doing really well. <laughs> so the biggest, you talked about what's driving our business, what's pushing customers. The biggest movement right now of our hardened long-term customers is how can we get plastic and non-disposable things out of everything? Mm-hmm. So, you know, bulk 
bulk shampoos and soaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big one. All that, yeah. all those products you use in the shower and those plastics just go nowhere. Yeah. Or any, you know, like washing dishes or, you know, any of the shampoo, like uh, detergents. That's been a huge, so again, I told you like we find new products based on like customer recommendations. We've had so many people wanting. And so like what we've found is that a lot of these innovative companies that we really go after are using compostable, biodegradable plastics to present the products, even like cracker boxes or whatever. So, but again, it's like everything. It costs a lot more money to make these these containers. But what we're seeing is consumers, you know, I actually did this panel off at Bowdoin a couple of years ago, like consumers, consumerism versus activism. Yeah. I kind of walked in that and remember what I was getting into, but the, the overall concept was pretty amazing. You know, it's like at the end of the day, it's like you got to put your money where your mouth is. Lauren's like kind of you had this thing with like these Bowdoin students that are like, oh, rah, rah, I'm an activist and I'm, you know, marching in Washington and blah, blah, blah. But then you'd like see them out behind the, the you know, they weren't following any of the environmentalist activism that they were like preaching. So it was like, oh, that's kind of what I interpret it as, you know, so it's like until you start to preach what you're so like I one thing I brought up in that thing was like like BPA and cans. I don't know if you guys remember BPA from like. So once consumers stopped making a stink, started making a stink about it, whether you were an ethical food person or anything, but they didn't want it in their cans, then every can at Hannaford eventually had to convert. And that was consumers made that happen. I'm seeing way more consumers who are not buying stuff because of the packaging. And until we get the packaging right on the shelf, the biggest movement right now is bulk everything. Right. So when my mom opened that store, we had bulk honey, we had bulk detergent, we had bulk maple syrup, we had bulk olive oil, we, you know, everything. I go in the basement and it's full of these like 25 year old bulk fixtures, <laughs> bulk peanut butter, bulk everything. So it just, but it made such a mess. You had customers like dispensing, mm-hmm. And then what happened was all those bulk companies went away because can, companies can make a lot more money by selling you 12 plastic containers that you have to buy every week than the thought that you're going to buy enough for a month and only come once. So like the detergent companies, it does not behoove them to have a bulk container dispenser in your store because you don't buy nearly as much and you don't have all that packaging which you pay for. It's a really twisted kind of... So like, cause that was so we used to have all these companies, all the brands made bulk versions of everything. Well, in the last month, um, last year or two, customers have been like, yeah, I used to buy this in bulk. You know, yeah, you're right. You know what? We could try that again. And then you go to find all those things I remember from years ago. Yeah. The, those brands have probably been bought up by companies that are concerned with one thing, <laughs> and all those things that didn't make as much money for them are unfounded. I can't find a lot of them in the catalog anymore. Okay. But as a result of what consumers are going for, these things are coming, they're re-emerging because the activism versus consumerism is like, when you stop buying stuff that makes money, then the manufacturers start to change their model. It was like those BPA cans. When it was always BPA free, it was always like a little kind of hokey, small store thing. Sounds like you guys are always just like ahead of the big wave. <laughs> well, the big, so that's the thing. But again, it's just all independent natural it's, foods. Yeah. It's like if you go to this, you know, so it's called Expo East and Expo West. They have two national convention, you know, they're like sales. <laughs> they're just vendors go and there's like, uh, it's a big convention where you can find new products. Yeah. 
So they rent like the Baltimore Convention Center and 50,000 people go and you find, oh. that's where a lot of this energy and information comes from and yeah. you find, yeah, I mean, it's like we are kind of ahead of that wave, but it's a whole culture, it's a whole, it's a whole industry that is, mm. that's where we've learned it from, which comes back to what we were talking about initially is again, it, it was like these pioneer type people yeah. that had a vision a million years ago and then it's become a thing. Mm. Um, I'll just, I'll end with one thing is that there's this group called the Independent Natural Food Retailers Association, it's IMPRA is the acronym. Yeah. It's like a, it started as like a group of morning glories, you know, there was a woman that had a vision and she's like, you know, now that Whole Foods and Wild Oats and these other brands are really starting to stronghold the industry, yeah. if we don't band together as a group of independents, we're gonna be left out, out of the game. You know, yeah. we're not gonna, they're gonna, these other companies are going to dictate manufacturing. They're going to Whole Foods gets like the first rights to most products. Yeah. They're going to start supply chain. If we don't start bonding, banding together and buying in, in numbers and volume, we're going to yeah. lose. So this woman started this thing called Impa. And again, it was like my morning glory was like the 12th store to join this group of people yeah. just like, you know, like, like hippies. And so I went to this first meeting when I moved back here. It was in Connecticut because it started in Minneapolis. Believe it or not, the Twin City, Minneapolis, St. Paul is like a mecca of natural food. <laughs> that is not where I had, would have it's been It's super that, green. Yeah. It's an interesting city. I mean, you're like in the middle of the Midwest. It, it's a, <laughs> but that little, like little two cities, the huge cultures, mostly co-ops, but that's where Impa is, was based out of. Yeah. And so the like month I moved back to Maine, I went to this meeting in Connecticut and it was literally like four other stores, nine people yeah. out of New England. And the, the CEO of Impro was there, and they're, we're in like a Grange Hall in some little town in Connecticut, and they're talking about, oh, we're going to get, if once we get enough members, we're going to have, we're going to be able to have special buying rights, we're going to yeah. get distribution, we're going to get supply, we're going to have, and I'm like, sitting in this room with these older people, and I'm like, these people have lost their mind, they like <laughs> ate too much acid in the 60s or something, like, what, who, you know, so then fast forward, like, so then Impra grew and grew and grew and I started going to the national sales meeting yeah. or the national conference and now this is only it started I think 14 years ago and now there's 470 storefronts wow. and there's which some companies have multiple locations hmm. it's like 4 billion in aggregate sales you know I mean it, it's and so what's happened is now we have our own sale flyer now we get distribution deals we have manufacturing yeah. deals we have vendors that only deal with our little group my point is it's it's like talking about riding the wave but you know this was a thing that like we wouldn't be able to compete against even I mean, you go anywhere now they got organic and they got supplements sure. everywhere you yeah. got so independence wouldn't survive unless we were ahead of that wave which whether it's getting ahead of packaging or being better about yeah. insisting companies do x y and z i bring up Imper because again it was like some pipe dream but then you got a little momentum with it and you found some people that were when my mom told me she'd join this thing I, I went to several meetings and I'm just like I mean yeah in theory this is great I think you guys are totally on something but it's like talking about crazy talk and then 10 years later and so, you know that's why my, you know, we pay dues and you go and you have to adjust to participate in certain ways and I just remember thinking it was crazy and then, you know, now we went to the annual, well, I got canceled this past year, but we went to, my girlfriend and I went to the annual meeting in Minneapolis last summer. And now it's like, what used to be a Grange Hall in Connecticut was like 12 people. Now, I mean, they, it's a full, 
there's bands and you know yeah. you have like wow. seminars all day and there's a sign tabletop show and my point is it's like we all have to this industry has been like that all along so yeah. we have to stay ahead of the thing and right at that moment it was like how do we compete with like big box and yeah. whole foods and places that are kind of taking over our business yeah so i mean that's why like every year we keep squeezing more out of that little location you know and again it's like do we open more stores i don't know what the would you open it that was yeah, i mean my vision all along was always again this is like how do i curtail that old you know in, i came from like whoa i'm gonna open like 10 morning orders by the time, you know? yeah it's kind of like if it's not broke why well, mess with it yeah that's one thing that you get to you know you start wrapping your brain around yeah but then the other thing is i think a lot of these emperor stores i go i meet them they you know oh yeah i own six stores in philadelphia and you know i have 250 employees and we have like and they have all these things but like that doesn't always mean that you're like more like you know sometimes when you grow really big and you extend yourself and have all these resources you have to pay for it doesn't always mean that you're like your business is as thriving i you know i got my hands full here and i work all the time <laughs> but yeah like my visionary mindset is like oh you open many stores and you get to gradually step back and you have people managing and you yeah. just hold your people accountable but yeah the hands-on aspect's kind of what i love the most mm -hmm. but in my mind it was like oh yeah let's open stores all around mm -hmm. that just sounds like more headaches right now <laughs> but. you can find morning glory natural foods on main street in downtown brunswick maine there, Toby and his team keep the store stocked with all sorts of delicious and unusual items. Check them out in person or online. Throughout the 2020-2021 academic year, we will be publishing episodes online at bowden.edu sustainability under the green tea tab. There, you can also find show notes and descriptions of past episodes. Green Tea features interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members with a focus on sustainability. Thanks for Thanks listening. For listening.